Well, good morning once again, folks, and uh, you sure are a faithful bunch. Thank you so much for coming week after week, and I trust that these times will be encouraging for you as you see one another and uh, can interact at least a little bit after the service. How many of you consider yourselves to be readers? And the rest of us? Well, we probably relate more to that verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. The writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. I don't think that I am necessarily a reader by nature. I think I'm more of a doer. Let's, let's go do something. But when it comes to nurturing our relationship with God, reading is an essential service. It's an essential. For faithful followers of Jesus, reading God's word is to the soul what eating, drinking, breathing is to our physical bodies. During my studies this past week, I was reminded of a book that sits on the shelves in the pastor's study. It's titled... How to Read a Book by Mortimer J. Adler. Have you heard of it? Anybody heard of that book? On the back cover it reads, How to Read a Book, originally published in 1940, has become a rare phenomena, a living classic. It is the best and most successful guide to reading comprehension for the general reader. In the 1972 revised or updated edition, Mortimer wrote, the educators of the country have acknowledged that teaching the young to read in the most elementary sense of that word is our paramount educational problem. If there was a need for how to read a book 30 years ago, Remember, this is 1972. As the reception of the first edition of the book would certainly seem to indicate, the need is much greater today. Like I said, that was in 1972. 48 years ago. The original edition is now 80 years old. Apparently, the year after How to Read a Book was written, and published, a parody of it appeared under the title, How to Read Two Books. (laughs) Then someone else wrote a little more serious book entitled, How to Read a Page. Generally speaking, I think we'd all agree that we're not living in a culture of readers, unless it happens to be text messages or tweets. Beloved, that does not bode well for those who are wanting to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. It was the title of Adler's book that prompted me to title this first message in our newest series, How to Read the Book of Ephesians. It will continue to take breaks on the second Sunday 
of each month so that we can prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper. But beyond that, we'll be focusing on this book of Ephesians for the next several months. And if things go according to the plan of the preacher's calendar, we should finish the book of Ephesians in mid-January, but please don't hold me to that. So as we begin, the primary purpose of this message this morning is to whet your appetite, to create or build a sense of anticipation for what lies ahead as we, as we give ourselves to the intentional, week-by-week, focused exposition of this New Testament letter. Perhaps I should, ext- should have extended the, the title of the message, or the title of this message, How to Read the Book of Ephesians with a Sense of Anticipation. That is my hope and prayer for this morning. By the end of this message, you'll be looking forward to discovering what God is desiring to do in us individually and collectively through this inspired, infallible, inerrant, and supernaturally preserved letter written first according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, to the saints who are at Ephesus. And I should mention that in our earliest a few, I think, I believe the, the number is three, earliest manuscripts, that word Ephesus is not found, leading some of the biblical scholars to suggest this letter may have been sent initially to Ephesus, but was intended to be a circular letter, something that was passed on to churches throughout the area. That could be, we're going to leave that with the biblical scholars to debate. It doesn't change the content content of the book one iota. How to read a book may be referred to as a living classic, but this New Testament letter is part of a much larger collection that claims to be the very word of God. A word that is, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a powerful book. I find Eugene Peterson's interpretive translation really helpful. It is as sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing or no one is impervious to the God's word. We can't get away from it, no matter what. And so let's be praying that God will use this study of Ephesians as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything in our lives, everything, whether it's doubt or or some kind of self-defensiveness, laying us open so that we're ready to listen and obey. I'm hoping and praying that by becoming acquainted with the introduction, book of Ephesians,
familiar with the rest of the story and aware of the thrust of this letter as a whole. It will create a sense of anticipation in each one of us. And if not a sense of anticipation, then perhaps at least a sense of curiosity so that we want to hear more of what Paul had to say in this letter to the Ephesians and how that might impact where you and I are living today. Please stand with me if you're able for the reading from God's word and turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians beginning at chapter 1. I'll read through to the end of verse 14. Beginning at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. This is God's word to us today. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we come humbly, recognizing our need to hear from you, the creator and sustainer of all things. We live in a confused world, a world where all kinds of voices are claiming to speak the truth, and competing for our attention, looking for our affirmation, and demanding our action. We pray with the psalmist, show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. 
Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. Father, may your spirit who indwells each and every true believer and all those who are trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, may that indwelling spirit do his illuminating work in our minds and hearts so that we understand this inspired text. Indeed, it is the same text that that spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write, ensuring that it was preserved down through the ages so that we have your very words before us this morning. What a privilege. What a responsibility. Create a sense of anticipation in each of our lives for the study of this book. And not just to know it, but to be transformed by it. Use this sermon series to transform the way we walk, the way we talk, the way we do church, our marriages and our homes, the way we engage in spiritual battles, all that and more. Again, may the psalmist's words be the expression of all of our hearts. O Lord, I give my life to you. I trust in you, my God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So creating a sense of anticipation. And if not anticipation, then perhaps at least a sense of curiosity. By first of all, becoming acquainted with the introduction. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The human author is named as Paul. And in addition to his name, we are given two qualifiers. You'll notice he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. And secondly, by the will of God. He's not just an apostle, but an apostle of Christ Jesus. Keep your finger in Ephesians chapter 1 and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Prior to trusting Jesus Christ alone as his personal Savior, Paul was also known by the name Saul. I'll begin reading at verse 1 of Acts chapter 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That's Stephen a leading servant and evangelist that was part of the community of believers in the city of Jerusalem that formed after Jesus' death, resurrection, 
and ascension, he's now been put to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him. But Saul, remember that's the Paul that is writing Ephesians began ravaging or terrorizing the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Now listen to what happened next next, reported in Acts chapter 9. If you just want to flip the page. In your Bibles, and I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Follow along in your Bibles. Meanwhile, Saul, again that's Paul, was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Unbelievable. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus. Now Damascus was another city located about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. So in Paul's day, that represented about a a two-week walk to get to the city of Damascus. This guy's committed, and he's serious. He goes to the leaders of the synagogue, and he asked them for cooperation in the rest of any followers of the way found there. The way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so these followers of Jesus were labeled as peoples of the way. Those are the people he's after. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city. And you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street. How ironic is that label? To the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. 
But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the peoples of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul became an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by pursuing a Bible college or seminary degree or education, although he was already well-educated in Judaism. Neither did he join an apostle's apprenticeship program. Rather, God hijacked this ambitious young man's efforts to protect Judaism. He opened his eyes so that he could see spiritual realities. And God recreated him as a new man. Old things passed away. Behold, all things became new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. A living example from a murder of Christians to an apostle, God's apostle, to the Gentiles. Don't ever question what God can do in a person's life. No one is unreachable. Exhibit A. Years later, now incarcerated for his faith, Saul, now named Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, wrote this letter to the Ephesians. The book of Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were also written during this season of Paul's life. And together, they're sometimes referred to as the prison epistles. But Paul wasn't writing to an entire city. The original recipients were residents of Ephesus, city slickers. But they would have been a minuscule minority who Paul identifies as saints. That is how he referred to followers of Jesus. You see, the recipients were believers, first and foremost, who were living in the city of Ephesus. They were no different than you or I. We too, if we are trusting Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, are saints in the biblical sense of that word. This morning, I have the privilege of preaching to saints who are at Woodstock. 
Ephesus was the capital city of the province. So Ephesus was to Asia what Toronto is to Ontario. Now, in this context, we're not talking about six plus million people. But we are talking about to approximately about 250,000 during this period in the first century living at Ephesus. This is a significant number of people. That's six times the size of Woodstock. 250,000 people, which made it, by the way, the second largest city in the world at that time. And notice the original recipients were not just saints, but saints who were faithful in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you, can, can we have unfaithful saints? If faithfulness was automatic, then much of the Bible would be unnecessary. These folks were displaying the kind of commitment called for in verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. These were faithful saints. Not that they were perfect. We're not saying that. But they were faithful followers of Jesus Christ. The kind of people that we want to be and produce here at the Rock Community Church. According to our own mission statement, the Rock Community Church exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ. The human author, the original recipients, and now notice verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just a, a standard greeting. Maybe not quite as flippant as our greeting as we pass one another in the hall or on the street. Hey, how you doing? Neither one of us pausing because we don't expect an answer. It's just a greeting. It's a common greeting. Paul uses these exact same words in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, and Titus chapter 1, verse 4. It's common. Grace and peace to you. Sometimes I use those words at the end of a piece of correspondence rather than going warmly or sincerely. It's grace and peace to you, George. With grace, Paul may have been referencing the salvation that we can enjoy. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Peace could then express the reality of our relationship with God and our relationships with one another as a result of the grace that we've received resulting in our salvation. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we read, But now you have been united with Christ, 
That's the grace part. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Made peace with God. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Peace with God, peace with one another. Grace and peace to you, and to you, and to you, all of us. From God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter explains how that peace becomes a personal reality. Becoming acquainted with the human author, the original recipients, and the greeting is intended to whet your appetite, to create a sense of anticipation. And if not anticipation, then at least a sense of curiosity so that you'll want to hear more. Secondly, by becoming familiar with the rest of the story. Some of you will be old enough to remember hearing Paul Harvey on the radio. He hosted a a radio program that would tell interesting stories on a variety of subjects. And there would always be some key part of the story that he would hold back as he told this interesting story. Usually it was the name of some really well-known person. And he'd hold it back to the very end of the story. And then there'd be a commercial break often. And he would return with the, the big reveal and close with, and now you know the rest of the story. The original recipients of this letter from Paul to the church at Ephesus, they would already be familiar with much of the rest of the story. And you and I aren't. We're not. And so I'm going to take just a a few moments and invite you to turn in your Bibles to three different passages that may help. But before we do that, we've got some time. Let's, uh, how many have maps in the back of their Bible? Do you ever turn to your maps? Like they're there and we often ignore them. Turn to the map and find the one that is usually, it'll be titled something like Paul's Missionary Journeys. As you see them there, you'll, you'll find that there are actually three expeditions that the Apostle Paul goes on. And you'll notice that all three start in a city called Antioch. And if you follow them along, you'll notice that they all, well, two end in that city. One ends up in Jerusalem. There are three different routes. They all begin in Antioch. The first is relatively short. 
The second was longer. And the third, you'll notice, is when the Apostle Paul stops in the city of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. See it there? In fact, Paul not only stopped there, but he ended up spending three years of his life in the city of Ephesus before moving on. The first passage that I'd like us to turn to is Acts chapter 19. This passage will help us to become familiar with the beginning or the early days of the church at Ephesus. Now, Priscilla and Aquila, it's believed, have been in Ephesus for a while. But when Paul comes, this, this group is just kind of a small group. And by the time he leaves, it, becomes, it has become a church. So this is the church's beginning. Let me read from verse 1 through to the end of verse 10. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, now remember where he's at now. This is the capital city of the province. 250 people. He's, he's now arrived in Toronto. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. That was an accreditation that was happening during the early days of the church. Authentication. There were in all about 12 men. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Synagogue. Jews. But when some were becoming hard-headed and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. So in a so people are coming to the city of Ephesus, the capital city, and going back to their hometowns, and they're hearing, being exposed to the gospel. At the beginning of chapter 20, we find Paul departing from Ephesus following a riot that had broke out, traveling to Macedonia and through Greece. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, 
he came to Greece. So he's gone across, you'll see on your map, and down through modern Greece, and now he's going to return on his return trip back to Jerusalem. He's been collecting funds because in Jerusalem there's been this big famine and the church in Jerusalem needs help. And so he's collecting money for them. And so he's in a little bit of a rush. And so rather than go into Ephesus, he decides to go to Miletus, which is about 40 miles south on the coast. And he invites the elders to join him there. And again, if... They're walking, that's about a four-day trip from the city of Ephesus to Miletus. In this passage, we become familiar in chapter 20, verses 17 to 21, with the church's leadership. Let me read those for us. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called, him, called to, to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you public and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks, of the repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was hard at work. He's reminding them of what he was doing for those three years. Now drop down to verse 28, and we find the charge that he gives these elders or the leaders that have come to him from the church at Ephesus. Here's his charge, beginning at verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The church was established, saw the beginning, the leadership, and now one more passage that we need to be familiar with. If you'll turn with me to Revelations chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. You can follow along in your translation, please. Beginning at verse 1. The message to the church at Ephesus. Years later, years now, probably, Jesus died in 30 AD, 33 AD. Um, Paul's missionary journeys were about 10 years later, 20 years later, and now it's the year close to almost the turn of the century. So it's in the 90s, 97 AD. 
And John has these revelations that he writes down while living on the island of Patmos. Listen as he writes. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You've discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. That's a commendation. So the elders went back to Ephesus and they were doing some things right. And they're being commended from heaven. But now listen. Verse 4, unfortunately, starts with a but. I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first, exclamation mark. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I'll give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And now you know the rest of the story. Becoming familiar with the church at Ephesus, beginning leadership and evaluation is intended to whet our appetites for more. Create a sense of anticipation. And if not anticipation, at least a sense of curiosity so that we want to hear more. Becoming acquainted with the introduction becoming familiar with the rest of the story, and thirdly, becoming aware of the thrust of this entire letter. can whet our appetite, can create that sense of anticipation as we begin our study of this letter of Paul to the church at Ephesus. And by thrust, what I mean is that what the author is attempting to do with what he is saying, what the author is attempting to do with what he's saying. He's writing for a purpose. What is he hoping to accomplish as he wrote this letter of Ephesians? Abraham Curvella is a professor of pastoral ministries at Dallas Theological Seminary. In his commentary on the book of Ephesians, I think he provides some really helpful insights. Listen as I read. Ephesians sinks to disabuse, um, to get rid of. So Ephesians seeks to rid us of the notion that everything in the universe is centered around our own needs and devices. Rather, God is at the center of it all. The universe is his stage, and his plans for the cosmos are being fulfilled. 
Almost sounds like our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? In, in this, he continues, in this grand and glorious plan, however, God has designed to include humans and how we are to align ourselves with this great divine design is the thrust of the letter to the Ephesians. Wow. Think about that. Allow that to kind of sink in for a moment. What a great follow-up to the book of Ecclesiastes where we were told that God has a sovereign plan that is permanent, perfect, purposeful, and predictable. A plan that makes everything beautiful in its time. And now, in this book, in this grand and glorious plan, however, God has designed to include humans, me and you, we're humans, And how we are to align ourselves with this great divine design is the thrust of the letter of Ephesians. And if that doesn't create some kind of anticipation. You may have heard that old saying. He's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. You heard that? Well, the book of Ephesians wants to challenge that saying. We have to be both heavenly-minded and earthly good. If we're going to align ourselves with God's grand and glorious plan. The book of Ephesians was written to help us to do just that. And that is why I've entitled this entire series of messages based in the book of Ecclesiastes as both heavenly-minded and earthly good. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Ephesians chapter 1. And with this, we'll wrap it up pretty quick. You may want to highlight or underline these phrases. He made known to us the mystery of his will. Underline that, highlight it. You didn't figure this out on your own. You're not smart enough, and neither am I. He made known to us the mystery of his will. God made known to us. And then halfway through verse 10, that is the summing up or the consummation of all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things in earth. Let me read those verses from the New Living Translation. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. Does that remind you of a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it will be answered. It's going to happen. 
And we can be part of that happening. In Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, Paul tells us about who we are and what we have in Jesus Christ. We have the security from the Father, salvation from the Son, and sealing from the Holy Spirit. And as saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus, we have access to spiritual riches and resources beyond our wildest dreams. Chapters 4 through 6, we're invited to live lives that are accessing all those riches and resources that God has made available to those who are trusting Jesus Christ alone as their personal Savior. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, presents it as a rhetorical question. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? According to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he has. And so what are we going to do about it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for this community of saints, the Rock Community Church. May our study today and in the weeks ahead equip us individually and collectively to live, to work, to serve, indeed to respond to all the circumstances of our lives in ways that please you, help to accomplish your plans and purposes, proving to be good for ourselves and for those around us. May our hearts be prepared to receive these seeds of your word so that as we hear, read, study, memorize, and ponder them so that we are both heavenly-minded and earthly good by the power of your spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.